Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Naha Beyond Aromatics 2023 podcast. Today, we have conference speaker Amanda Plunkett with us. Hello, Amanda. Thank you for being here today. Hello, and thank you for having me. We're so excited for the conference and have awesome speakers like you. And I was just wondering, what is your what was your first introduction to aromatherapy? Aromatherapy really began with my journey with plants. And like most people, it's been long and winding. As a young child, I had sensory integration issues, so I was not generally fond of the outdoors. Um, However, that love grew as my mother tried to nurture the love of nature and took us camping. My summers were spent camping or roaming the fields around my grandmother's property in the country. And then one of my fondest memories is collecting blackberries from my great-grandmother's yard with my cousins. And of course, we were instructed to wash them before eating them, but most of them did not make it indoors. And then fast forward years later, I had four children of my own, and one of them wouldn't eat. And somewhere in a magazine, I read that you could use gardening as occupational therapy to help children with food disorders. So that's what I did. And this helped not only my children, but it increased my bond with plants. And then over the years, plants continued to prove helpful with my emotional and physical issues. But really, aromatherapy came into play um, when I was diagnosed years later, after all of my children, with an environmental illness. And I was bedridden with low blood pressure and migraines and extreme pain. And the doctors didn't know how to help me. So I decided again to turn to plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a friend at the time was part of a company and introduced me to essential oils versus just using whole plants. Um, since part of my therapy included trauma work, um, and retraining my brain to sense that's when I decided to study aromatherapy versus just using the essential oils. Mm-hmm. So you always had a connection to plants as kind of a, in a therapeutic way, whether it was as a child trying to get closer with nature um, or trying to help your children or trying to heal yourself when when you came down with something bad. <clears throat> I think that's awesome. So where what did you officially do to for schooling once you were interested in aromatherapy? I looked on to the Naha website. Um, I had learned about Naha through just a Google search and looked at approved schools and then received my clinical aromatherapy certification through Jade Shoots. Oh, so you went through Jade Shoots and and you found the Naha website organically. That's wonderful. And then um, how did this all evolve to a mix of working with bees and, and pollinators and aromatherapy? Um, As a beekeeper, of course, we know that bees are very sensitive to scent. They can smell for miles um, in the absence of ozone. And thus, our 
communication with them involves aromatherapy many times. So as an aromatherapist, Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in aromatherapy, but I have to be very careful not to wear scents on my body because I could inadvertently speak different messages to my bees. When I want to calm them down, I use certain scents. Or when I want them to move in a certain direction, I'll use different scents. And then they speak to me with their sense as well and to one another. Um, So really my connection with beekeeping, my connection with plants, because I also take care of the land to take care of my bees. I don't expect to just put in sugar water and pollen patties for them to be healthy. I work the land and that connection has to be there as I'm, you know, providing them food with flowers. Wow. So aromatherapy and plants and um, everything you do is to create an amazing environment for the bees that you keep and and the bees that you help. I I think that's awesome. Yes. And more than just um, honeybees, because that really Mm -hmm. was just my foot in the door, the vehicle for my advocation. It really is for the habitat and environments as a whole. So I um, have an apiary in a local city here, and I've been working the land. And for the first time in seven years, I've seen bumblebees at that site, and they were on plants that I had planted. Wow. That's got to be gratifying. Yes, it was. So in that vein, what is one thing that we can change at our homes to make a more welcoming environment for pollinators so that we can see some bumblebees too. A lot of people would expect me to say plant more flowers, or they may expect me to say stop using pesticides. And it is actually pretty eye-opening what I actually recommend. And that's because there are over 20,000 different species of bees worldwide. And honeybees are an immigrant to the United States used for agricultural purposes. They are native in other areas of the world, but 70 to 80 percent of our bees live underground. They live under where we're walking every day. Mm -hmm. And my recommendation is to save the soil. But how do we do that? Um, Most conventional land care practices that happen in our agriculture or happen in our cities involve tilling, um, which is one of the largest contributors of release of carbon into the atmosphere or scraping of the soil, especially here in the desert. That happens a lot. Of -hmm. course, the use of herbicides and pesticides, whenever anyone is spraying the ground, they're killing bees. They're poisoning the bees that live there. Um, zero landscaping, where they cover the yards completely with you know black plastic and rocks, that kills bees. And so we're not only stealing their habitat um, when we're taking out plants and native plants, but we're also killing them anytime we do damage to the soil. So my push is for people in urban landscapes, as well as agriculture, to focus on soil health. 
move to a systems-based approach and encourage habitat versus destroying it. Wow. That's so interesting. And, you know, so many of us probably have the an idyllic view of a honeybee um, that lives in a nest and all of that. And, and it's so much more complex with all of the native pollinators of North America. Um, and thank you for sharing that about, you know, looking out for what we do with the soil and the ground that so many of our pollinators live in. That really, to me, I think involves a holistic way of looking at it, because if you save the soil, you're going to plant more habitat. You're not going to use toxic compounds on the soil. You're going to try to not break it up until it, you're going to do something to save it. And that will in turn save the pollinators. Thank you, Amanda. And, um, your conference topic is at-risk medicinal plants and their pollinators. So I'm sure we'll uh, have much more to learn in, in an in-depth presentation from you. Um, but as just a fun question, I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite essential oil, either currently or if you have an all-time favorite? Well, I will have to say that lavender, the most popular, is not popular in my home. Um, but hands down, I do have a favorite, and it is Helichrysum italicum. And because it, to me, is the all-purpose oil for hiking, for being out in the wild, it's convenient. It fits in my hiking bag and my first aid kit. I've used it uh, for twisted knees to reduce swelling, stop nosy bleeds, help with joint pain, heal minor wounds. So it really is the oil that stays in my hiking backpack um, for the field. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love that your favorite essential oil is a very practical one and, and something that you keep with you on the field as you work with pollinators, I'm assuming. Yes, because I um, get injured, of course, or when we're out and about, you know, I'm very clumsy, so I'm going to fall and hurt something along the line sometime. <laughs> well, me too. Maybe I need to carry some helichrysum with me. <laughs> yes. And um, is there any is there a way that the pollinators react to helichrysum that you've noticed, or or is it a non-issue? Well, bees in particular don't seem to be attracted to the essential oil because essential oil oils are concentrated they don't always react as you think they would like yes. if i have lavender in my bag with the compounds that go through the distillation process and make it into the essential oil then they are attracted to it i'll have bees looking in, in my bag in the car looking for that lavender flower but hmm. with the helichrysum the compounds that are in it or tea tree oil for example um do not attract them. Tea tree, actually, they avoid it. Mm -hmm. Melaleuca and also uh, rosemary, things of that nature, because of the compounds that are isolated, um, they also become insect repellents. So with the helichrysum, it doesn't seem to repel them, but it doesn't seem to attract them either. It's a bit neutral for them. Right. But if you have a bit of lavender in your bag, the bees will buzz around your bag. <laughs> oh, yes, they'll be very curious. I've had them 
walk into a purse and then, you know, looking for whatever it was they wanted, they thought the lavender was in there and then they fly out and leave. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you, what can our members expect to learn from your Beyond Aromatics presentation this year? And the topic is at-risk medicinal plants and their pollinators. Well, we have a responsibility to make sure as a species that we're trying to be as sustainable as possible. Otherwise, there's not going to be a home for us left. And we are such an invasive, devastating species that we over-harvest the very plants that we're using to heal us, but they need to be there for future generations. So we don't think about the origin of that plant. Was it sustainably harvested? Was it farmed? Were the farming practices healthy for the environment? And our pollinators are often very for the most part, specialized. So honeybees, for example, are called generalists. They forage off of many different plants, as well as our bumblebees. They're generalists as well. But most pollinators have only one or two plants that they feed from. And our native bees are no different. Or vice versa, where the plant only has one or two pollinators, that pollinate it. So when we lose one, we lose the other. Mm, and that makes I, sense. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to highlight uh, what I'm seeing here in California with white sage. Um, it's harvested from the wild here where it grows natively. And I use it personally, but only from plants that I've grown and nurtured on private land. The primary pollinators for white sage are large bees that use vibrational pollination to release the pollen. They have to shake, shake it out. Mm -hmm. They're big and they have lots, lots of thoracic muscles when they shake it, right? Um, so the bumblebees here, I've noticed, are in steep decline. Like I said, in um, Rancho Cucamonga, it took me seven years to see a bumblebee. Mm-hmm. And this is the native territory of the white sage. Um, so here, the primary pollinators I've observed on white sage are the valley carpenter bees. But because they can burrow in wo wood, humans try to destroy them. So, oh, yeah, yeah it's, I mean, you can see carpenter bee traps, right, at big box stores. Or they'll say, how can you come and you know, kill these carpenter bees? How can I get rid of them? Um, and it really is very upsetting, especially since they're so very docile and they're beneficial pollinators. If we lose them, since they're the primary pollinator for white sage, we're going to lose the plants as well. Because mm -hmm. especially since with wild foraging or the plants that are at risk, they may not have time to adapt for attracting a different pollinator. Right. Yeah, I think that that's something that's tragic about us humans is that we lo will love the plants so much, but 
we we won't support the system that keeps the plants thriving for years and years to come. We just want the plants now. And I think the work that you do and um, the work that some of our other speakers are going to be speaking about is is the step forward for for us. If we love plants so much, we need to know how and why we should take care of them. Exactly. What are the interactions beyond us? What are the plants pollinators? How can we encourage the environment and habitat for that pollinator? Um, so because once we have the house for the pollinator and the plants for the pollinator, because they need the house and the food just like we do, and how we can encourage and nurture that habitat, then these at-risk plants can proliferate and reproduce um, to catch up from the devastation that we've done and why they're at risk in the first place. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being with us today and for sharing what you have um, to say. And I'm so excited personally to, to see your presentation in October at Beyond Aromatics 2023. And uh, yeah, thank you for being here today. Thank you. I'm looking so very forward to it.